Now, at some point over the last 30 years or so, when mu music videos became a thing, uh, one, one artist at some point decided it would be amazing to uh, play the piano out in nature. I don't know who the first person was that did that, but they weren't wrong. Because it's really cool juxtaposition to see a grand piano being played on a cliff, on the beach, with the waves crashing in the background, in a forest. I mean, it's, it's, it's beautiful and it's neat, but also uh, not practical, of course, because uh, pianos in the wrong environment go out of tune immediately. And so as cool as it would be to have an old piano on the deck in your backyard, you couldn't really do that uh, without that thing going out of tune in no time. Our hearts are very much like the piano due to the environment constantly going out of tune. And so we've been given this great gift called prayer, by which it's a gift of God's grace to retune our hearts. And he gives us this gift for us to avail ourselves of it every day. And so from now, for the next uh, few weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to be focusing in on this gift of prayer. We're going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer, and we're going to be breaking it down a couple verses at a time, and just exploring this, this great gift of God's grace. We're going to use two scriptures each week. Uh, the first scripture will be from Matthew 6, where we find the Lord's Prayer, and then we will be uh, having a, a support text uh, to sort of expound on it. And our, our scripture for this morning, uh, in addition to Matthew 6, is going to be Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. Uh, so let's uh, turn to God's word together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And now from Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. This is God's word. Now, the Lord's Prayer is like this really rich liturgy. For those of you new to the scriptures or new to uh, Christian faith, the word liturgy means order. So there is this beautiful order uh, to the Lord's Prayer. And it was originally written in the Greek language. And in the Greek, there's different moods, just like in English. We have different moods for the way we write things. And the mood here is the imperative mood. When you say something in an imperative mood, it's incredibly forceful. But we don't pray to God, uh, you know, forcefully in the sense that we are um, dictating to God what we need with certainty. But we pray, we are encouraged to pray forcefully to God um, entreating him passionately. It's a picture of dependence and confidence. Dependence because we need our father. And confidence uh, because like a little child, we know that we'll be safe in his hand. There's a theologian in the 17th century. His name is Thomas Goodwin. And he gives this picture of the father's great grace. And he, and he tells this story like this. There's a father and a son and they're going for a walk. And at some point on the walk, the father scoops down, picks up the little boy, gives him a big hug and kisses him and says, I love you, and puts the little boy on the ground. Here's the question. Was the boy more of a son when he was in the father's arms than when he was walking on the street? Objectively and legally, there's no difference whatsoever. But experientially, emotionally, feeling the wrap of the father's arms, it was all the difference in the world. And so in this, we want to look at the Lord's Prayer so that we can... Uh, not just over the next few weeks, but in our lives, feel the warmth, feel the grip, feel the love of our Father's arms 
in prayer to get us through um, each and every day. So we want to look at this uh, text here uh, in Matthew 6 and in Romans 8 and consider three things this morning. Firstly, the grace of our adoption. Secondly, the liberation of childlike dependence. And thirdly, the comfort of God's will. So first, the grace of our adoption. The context of all of Romans 8, if you back it out, Paul's built this huge argument that we are saved by grace alone, apart from our works, and God has met the requirements of his own law in Jesus Christ uh, with the grace of his gospel. And because all of that is true, the first eight chapters of Romans crescendoing into this you know, glorious picture of uh, adoption by this father of grace, we don't have an impersonal force above us. We're not praying to some cosmic mystery above us. We have this uh, loving father who is inclined towards us. And so we can be confident that his will is good towards us. In verses uh, 14 and 15 of Romans 8 there, we've got this image of adoption. It's like this really striking image because when you adopt a little baby, that baby has no contribution in the matter. Uh, And in fact, that baby that gets adopted has an instant inheritance. And that's the scandalous picture of grace that the apostle wants us to think about when we think about our father. That um, essentially Jesus Christ, throughout the New Testament, letter after letter after letter after letter, he is the subject and we are the objects. So some of you have now become homeschool teachers against your own will over this last year. And so you know, since all of you are now who have small children, English teachers, the subject of the sentence is the thing doing the action. And the object of the sentence is having the action done to it. This is the grammar of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the subject. He's always the subject. Luke 24, he says, from beginning to end, I am the subject of all scripture. The glorious one doing the action. We are the objects having the action done to us. And that has this glorious implications then for how we then live. And just very briefly, I want to mention, you'll notice that that first line says that if we're led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And there's that word sons, and then the rest of the text uses the word children. And I know that that, to call everybody, men and women, sons, is offensive to the modern ear because, you know, uh, we live in an age where that's, you know, incredibly offensive. But it's very important. And here's why it's important. Today Today it would be offensive Uh, if it wasn't understood to be offensive to women. But I need you to know the day that Paul penned that, it was offensive to men. Because in ancient patriarchal cultures, the only ones that got the inheritance were the oldest sons. It didn't mean the rest of the family got nothing. It meant it was their responsibility to take care of the rest of the family. In other words, if you were the oldest son, you knew your inheritance was was for sure. But if you were a younger son or a daughter... What? It depends on after your parents die, you know, what was your relationship like with your brother? Maybe you have a good inheritance, maybe you don't. I mean, it just wasn't a for sure thing. So what the Apostle Paul does here is he's not trying to offend and and diminish women. He's actually in the gospel of Jesus Christ, giving unprecedented uh, dignity at that time uh, for women by saying, actually, whether you're you're a man or a woman, and regardless of where you fall in the birth order, By the grace of Jesus Christ, unlike your earthly father, your heavenly father gives you a guaranteed inheritance on the basis of Jesus Christ. So that's why the text um, reads that way. And so what Jesus is after in, in terms of us praying to God, our father who's in heaven, is he wants us to grasp what is most basic in prayer. And what is most basic in prayer is this childlike trust and awe 
This amazement of the privilege of adoption, this amazement of the inheritance that is coming as a result of your adoption, it's, it's incredible. And in the words of uh, one of my you know, theological mentors and close friends, Tim Keller, who doesn't know I exist, but nevertheless has been formative in my life, he says, this, he says it this way, you, you don't have access to the king. You don't get to ask the king to get up in the middle of the night and give you a glass of water unless you're his child. The child of the king can cry in bed and that king will get up out of his bed and serve and care for that child and love that child. And so our heavenly father cares and, and loves for us. Our, our king is the creator and our adoption has brought with it just incredible mind-blowing privilege. So Jesus places pr- praise in prayer. See it there. It's primary. There's an order to this, and the order matters, and the liturgy matters, and the praise is primary because when praise is primary, then like a little child being swept up into the arms of their father, we feel the, we feel the warmth of our father's arms in our praise. You know, every week, you know, we declare that uh, corporately, but every day we need to really marinate in that and meditate on that personally uh, so that it, the, the truth of this can become very real, so that the objective truth about God's grace, the objective truth about God's care, the objective truth about God's provision, isn't just something that you sort of intellectually assent to, but it's something that you experientially enjoy, that carries you through uh, the difficult days when it seems like the earth is melting. To remember whose hands you are, whose grasp you are firmly in. And so if we bypass this worship of God, if we just blow by the Our Father who's in heaven, praise be your name, if we just omit worship and say, I'm not really that excited about worship, and we just reduce prayer to divine shopping lists by where we just ask God for things, um, there isn't going to be joy, and there isn't going to be uh, strength in prayer. It's not, prayer's not even going to be exciting to us. I know from my own life personally, There'll just be lots of sort of worrying in God's direction and calling that prayer. You know, not really resting and being revitalized. Some of you are runners. We've got a lot of runners and cyclists in this room and hikers and campers. And like, you go and you do that outdoor activity and you need to be replenished. Prayer is your electrolytes. Like just the marinating and the goodness of God's grace. Those are the electrolytes for the soul. You can't bypass that. And just be like, let's, I've done my 5K run for the uh, 10K run, 20K run, and let's just go on the business of now becoming more productive. You've got to stop and replenish. And this is the gift of praise. This is why praise is primary in prayer. Um, now, maybe you're here exp- you know, exploring Christian faith, considering Christian faith, and you might be wondering, you know, is God this sort of divine megalomaniac who's constantly saying, tell me how great I am, you know? Uh, is that what's going on? We have a divine narcissist who just needs his creation to constantly reflect back to him how good he is. Absolutely not. We don't respect people who need to be told constantly by everyone who's around them how intelligent they are, how good they are, how delightful they are. We can't stand those kinds of relationships. We don't have a, a cosmic megalomaniac saying, tell me how good I am. Jesus instructs us to come to the Father and praise not because he needs it, but precisely because we need it. Precisely because we need this orientation of worship. Because if our Father is the Creator, and the one who created the worlds by a word of his power, 
If he's behind all the beauty and the magnificence of creation, which he is, then to center on him and to worship him, that's to enter reality. But to center your life on something else, cosmically smaller than him, that's not to enter reality. It's actually a cosmic level is a denial of reality, which results in uh, an incredible amount of uh, worry and anxiety and to have a profoundly crippled soul. Now, in the words of uh, C.S. Lewis, he put it this way, just a beautiful writer, for those of you who have never heard of him, he was an atheist for much of his life, just a brilliant uh, professor at Oxford, who came to faith in Jesus Christ, and he says this. He says, "A, A person cannot diminish the glory of God by failing to worship him any more than a madman can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the wall of his cell. And so we worship God precisely because we need it. It's this glorious recalibration of the soul. It needs to be a part of our lives every day so we can be replenished and encouraged. You know, and when you experience something great, you know, think about it. You want others to experience it. You read a great book, next thing you know, you're an evangelist for the book. You watch a great film, next thing you know, you're an evangelist for the film. You had a great coffee, somebody roasted it perfectly, next thing you know, you're telling everybody where the best coffee is in the street. You have a beautiful experience of shawarma, next thing you know, you're like, yo, it's Zazamon on Lancaster. P.S., by the way, that's why you got to go. Whoever told you it wasn't Zazamon, they are leading you astray, my brothers and sisters. It's Zazamon, Lancaster. You, you just become evangelists. You have a great experience. You want it, share it. Well, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he experienced the love and the grace and the strength of the Father in his trials, and he wants us to experience in ours. The Father empowered the Son by the presence of the Spirit, and it gave Jesus the strength to carry him through his suffering. And because of the gift of adoption, our Heavenly Father in prayer, He gives us the strength to carry us through ours. And so we've got this graphic sort of contrast of the spirit of adoption versus the spirit of bondage. It's this graphic image of slavery. And the Apostle is always using this graphic, disturbing image of slavery to sort of wake us out of our, uh, you know, lull us out of our slumber and our sleep to, to realize that adoption means something significant. Adoption is a one-time legal act that happens in a lawyer's office. But, it, but then that adopted child, it's a lifetime of growing into the family values. And the Apostle Paul is getting us to see we've not been given a spirit of bondage and slavery where we're sort of led around by our, led around by our nose like beasts who have no control over our in, impulses, just bigger-brained animals. He's like, you're not, you're not bigger-brained animals who have no control over how you live and how you think and what you do. You've been saved. You've been given this spirit of adoption. And so because you've been adopted by this Father of grace, you're now ushered into this life of gloriously living into the family values, resembling the Father, living to the glory and the grace of the Father. And so now, as children of adoption, we live our lives enjoying Him and glorifying Him and resembling Him. You know, last night, um, Susan and I were hanging out on the driveway with our neighbors. They put one of those, uh, you know, uh, those heaters, patio heaters out, and a bunch of us were all standing outside and hanging out for a while. We were looking at the moon and talking, because the other day there was a huge moon. Everybody was talking about the huge moon. We were talking about how you see this huge moon, you're driving in your car. Oh my goodness, look at the size of the moon. You pull over to take a picture of it, and then it's like a dot on your phone, and you're like, oh, I can't, I can't capture this. You know, the, the moon is not the source of its own light. The moon is reflecting the light of the sun. 
And the implications of our adoption means that the life that we now live, the obedience, the motivator behind all of it, is not that we are the creators of our own light, but that we are reflecting, essentially, the light of the sun. And so the implications of this are vast because our obedience is not, as children of adoption, our obedience is not completing what Christ has done. We're not finishing what Jesus started. It's how we walk out the implications of what Jesus finished. And there's a massive difference. And so our adoption means this guaranteed inheritance, which leads to the second thing, this liberation of childlike dependence. I just have one quick thing to say here before we move on about childlike dependence. You see in the text here that the phrase we're given is we cry out to God, Abba, Father. You know, the New Testament is written in Greek and then Paul throws in this one Hebrew word. Let's imagine how that would have caught everybody's attention. You're reading along in your, uh, the language of, uh, of the day and all of a sudden one word is just left in Hebrew on purpose to catch everybody's attention, Abba. And the Abba in, in Hebrew, uh, it's not actually a real word. It's like child babble. It's like when you become a grandparent, you have a name, but when that, child, when that grandchild that you love so dearly calls you bladdy blah blah you are willing to be called bladdy blah blah for the rest of your days. That's what grandparents do. It's child babble. That's what the Abba is in the Hebrew. It's not like father. It's just like a little kid who can't find the words, who's just kind of crying out. And that's there on purpose to get us to just consider the, the liberation of this childlike dependence. When a child is crying, and the little kids make the sounds, we hear them, in, we hear them you know, as they're crying, and they're not saying words. They're going, <laughs> they're going, <laughs> what is that? The child, the, the, the child is saying, I can't articulate what I need. I don't even know what I need, but I'm really clear on who I need. That's us, church, in prayer. We know who we need. We may not be able to articulate anything else, but we cry. It's a picture of dependence, this dependence that quiets the soul, the liberation of childlike dependence. In the context, of course, for all of Romans 8, if you back out of it and read it this afternoon, it's childbirth. You know, all of creation, nature, groaning, these pictures of childbirth. In childbirth, there's, there's commotion and there's... There's shouting and there's blood and there's a lot of things going on that that child has no concept that it's all for their benefit. But that's true of us. Of all the commotion and everything going on, it ultimately God uses it, our Heavenly Father, for the glory of His, uh, uh, for the glory of His name and for the good of our salvation. And so we cry out, our Father who is in heaven. Uh, there's a lot we don't know, but we know who we know. Praise be to your name. Last thing I want to say this morning is uh, there is comfort in God's will. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Years ago when I was uh, uh, racing at Shannonville Speedway, you'd come, down the, the, you'd come down the straight in your car and uh, there was this massive banner across the racetrack uh, by a tire company that said, they didn't, they didn't give a donation to Redeemer, so I'm not going to name the tire company. But, so there was, a, there was a tire company and it said, power is nothing without control. It was effective advertisement because as you're flying down, the, going towards a corner, you're, all of a sudden you're thinking about your tires now. So it's good placement. Power is nothing without control. What good is all this power if you can't control it? And you know, when, when I had a consumer view of prayer in my life, 
I kind of related it to like that. What good is prayer if I can't control the circumstance? What good is prayer if I ask God for things and he doesn't do them? What good is prayer if I can't, if I've got access to all this power, God and all the angels of heaven, what good is it if I can't basically just control it? And that is a terrible picture of prayer. I held it for more than I'd, embarrassingly longer than I'd care to admit. But the, the thing is that we, we've got this picture of, of thy will being done being good. That this is actually a good thing. Again, we're not praying to an impersonal power, but we're also not praying to a cosmic genie. God does not exist for the sole purpose of removing obstacle after obstacle after obstacle in our life so that we sort of live in endless comfort. This is very much difficult for us, particularly as North Americans, to not see God this way because our country and our neighbors south of the border of us have been thoroughly infected for about 100 years with the idea that that's precisely what, God, what prayer is for. A lot of theologies have run rampant saying, hey, church, you know, like just trust him and place your faith in him and he loves you and just ask, ask and, you know, God will answer your prayer. And then people have crisis of faith when the thing that they ask for doesn't happen. But we don't have a genie. Uh, we have a heavenly father. So we can have confidence in prayer, not because, you know, we have to live under the presumption that we know God's will or declare God's will and tell him what his will is, but to know that his will is good. To know that his will is wise. To know that he is loving. I just did an event last thir- this thir- past Thursday with a bunch of university students. It was massive. I couldn't believe it. They're an online event. I'm like, I don't know if anybody's going to show up. It was like 85, 86 university students show up for this event. And after I speak a little bit, we have Q&A. And they put me on the hot seat like I always do. And inevitably, somebody answers the question, asks the question and says, you know, um, I can't think of a good reason why a loving God would fill in the blank. It comes up 100% of the time. And I always begin by saying, it is not a good use of logic or reason to assume that because you cannot think of a good reason for something, that no reason exists. All you're confessing is you don't understand something. And that's actually a very liberating place to be. When you confess your smallness and you consider God's greatness. And you go for a walk and you stare at the cosmos until you feel small in the universe. And there's a lot of comfort in knowing that your life is in the hands of the will of God. The depth and the riches of God's wisdom and knowledge are unsearchable. The texts, the scriptures tell us, you know, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? And I'm going to close with uh, this thought here. We need, you know, God's kingdom to come in us. Where is the kingdom? It's where the king rules. Jesus talked about his kingdom in two ways, like it's here and like it's coming. He's like, it's here in the sense that I am here. Christ's kingdom is here in the sense that he rules and reigns in the hearts of his church. His death and his resurrection point us to this truth. It's here. But then we look out the window. Things are not good around the world. And in that sense, the kingdom is still coming. So how is it that we pray his kingdom come? We need his kingdom to come in our hearts. We need it to come in our lives. We need it to come in our thoughts. We need it to reorient our desires, our misplaced self-love, you know, the, the, the do a reshaping in our souls. Really, we're praying and saying, God, would you please extend your royal power to every part of my heart and of my life? You know, if you, if you take a child to Algonquin on a hike, they have no clue where they are, how they're going to get back, but you know. And this is the rest that we enjoy uh, with our Heavenly Father. There's a lot that we don't understand, but there is comfort in that He knows that our Father, the Creator of the universe, is looking at us, caring for us, 
And, you know, a toddler cannot understand how not being given what they want can't possibly be good for them. But cosmically speaking, we're all toddlers. The smartest person in here, whoever that person is, is a cosmic toddler. And so there is a lot of rest and there is a lot of recalibration and peace in your soul that is available in the worship of God and in resting in the goodness of His will that your life is in His hands. The Father is working in everything despite appearances to the contrary. Our God and Father is working through all these things. The challenges of COVID, the frailty of government, right? Some people's idols are in the coffin and they're feeling the pain of that as we look to our academia and science and, and politics to save us and it's struggling and grappling and there's a great shakedown happening globally. But the Father is working through all of it. He's not intimidated by any of it. Regardless of what's going on, this is what's true. It just reveals our need for a Savior. Our Father is so good, He uses all these terrible things that are absolutely nothing like Him to draw us to Him and to draw others to Him. We know we can be trustworthy because when the disciples were looking at the cross, they were thinking to themselves, this is the worst possible scenario, and they were staring at the best possible scenario. And that is how far and above and away the goodness of our God is beyond any of our thoughts or understandings of how he would operate in our lives and in the earth. You have a loving father who brought cosmos from chaos, and he spoke life from death, and your life is in the hands of death-proof savior of the universe who's holding the world together the word of his power and he's got you our father who is in heaven praise be to his name let's pray